0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to J.G. Ministries Bible Study. I'm Jeffrey, minister and chaplain at J.G. Ministries, and I'm glad you're with us today. Today, we're going to continue our Bible study in the Gospel of Luke, and we'll continue with chapter 22, verse 39. So go ahead and turn to that section, and let's get into it. We're going to be discussing the prayer on the Mount of Olives, the agony in Gethsemane. Now, in contrast to Matthew and Mark, Luke does not specify the location as being in Gethsemane. And he alone concludes at the beginning an exhortation to the disciples to ward off temptation by the means of prayer. So let's take a look at our scripture here, the prayer in the garden, beginning with verse 39, which says, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation." Now let's stop there for a moment. Let's take a look at verse 39. We see how Luke focuses his attention here on Jesus, who went to the Mount of Olives as usual. He did not change his habits to elude Judas. Jesus kept doing his same old routine. And the Garden of Gethsemane was situated on the western slope of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus often went there to pray. And the disciples went with him, including the betrayer Judas. So Judas knew that this is where Jesus was going to be. And the garden located at the foot of the western slope of the Mount of Olives, that's just east of the city of Jerusalem, we see that Jesus and his disciples may not have been alone in the Olive Garden, for at the Passover time, which would have been about April, there would have been thousands of pilgrims streaming into Jerusalem. And it is probable that many of them were camping on the Mount of Olives as well. And it's also noteworthy that Jesus could have merely taken a 15-minute walk eastward over the top of the mountain, and just vanished into the Judean desert. Yet Jesus chose not to flee. He stayed, and he knew he was going to be captured. He knew he was going to be tried and tortured and humiliated, and he knew that he was going to be crucified on our behalf. It's important to know that. So let's go back to verse 40 here, because we see at the conclusion of the Lord's Supper, Jesus and the disciples, they left the upper room and they went to the garden. And once they were there, Jesus warned them to pray that they should not enter into temptation. Now, this is not surprising because the themes of prayer and temptation are very common in the book of Luke. And perhaps the particular temptation which Jesus had in mind was the pressure to abandon God and his Christ when the enemies come closing in on them. We see in verses 41 and 42, Jesus left the disciples and he goes further into the garden where he prays alone. Kneeling in prayer was not customary in Jesus' conscious fulfillment of the purposes of God, emphasizing Jesus' concern for the will of God. His prayer was that if the Father were willing, that this cup might pass from Jesus. Nevertheless, Jesus wanted the will of God to be done, not his own will, but God's. That was why Jesus was there. And we understand this prayer to mean If there is any other way by which sinners can be saved than by my, as in Jesus, going to the cross, then reveal that way to me now. But the heavens were silent because there was no other way. This had to be the way it was. And Jesus uses the cup as a metaphor Of his imminent passion. In the Old Testament, the wrath of God expressed against sin was sometimes referred to by the metaphor of a cup. Now, we do not believe that Christ's sufferings in the garden were part of his atoning work. The work of redemption was accomplished during the three hours of darkness on the cross. But Gethsemane was in anticipation of Calvary. There the very thought of contact with our sins caused our Lord Jesus the keenest suffering imaginable. And Jesus' perfect humanity, as we go into verses 43 and 44, is seen in the agony which accompanied his travail. We see that an angel appeared to Christ from heaven. This angel strengthened Christ. And notice that only the book of Luke records this, as well as the fact that Jesus' sweat came to him like great drops of blood. Now, this latter detail caught the interest of this careful physician who was Luke. And Luke has already mentioned angels many times. He mentioned them in the nativity narrative and also elsewhere in the book. So the appearance of an angel here in Gethsemane is not strange to us at all. And Luke describes Jesus' agony in physical terms, as we might expect a physician to do. The sweating was apparently so profuse that it looked like blood dripping from a wound. And when Jesus returned to his disciples as we were looking into verses 45 and 46. He finds that the disciples were sleeping, not from indifference, but rather from a sorrowful exhaustion. And once again, Jesus urged them to rise and to pray because the crisis hour was drawing near. It was getting closer. And he knew that they'd be tempted to deny him before the authorities. Now, Luke does not dwell on the weakness of the disciples, nor does he describe in further detail Jesus' agony. He does explain the disciples' sleep as coming through exhaustion from sorrow, and Jesus repeats the injunction for the disciples to pray, lest they fall into temptation. Now, the traditional site of this garden cannot be far from the actual site. The human race started in a garden and buried in a garden. Paradise will be a garden. Jesus had come out of eternity knowing that the cross was at the end of the road, for he knew that he was coming as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. As a man, Jesus left Galilee and went to Jerusalem with determination He walked steady tread. He never wavered. He never faltered. But now Jesus had come to the end of the road, and there stood that ghastly thing. Jesus knew that he not only was called to die a physical death, but more importantly, was also required to die a spiritual death. Now, spiritual death means separation from God. The ultimate sacrifice for this divine man who had never known sin. Jesus knew that he was required to take on the sin of mankind, which required separation from his father and to descend into the depths of hell. It made even Jesus, the son of God, ask the question, Lord, if there is any other way. But Jesus alone was the way. He was the only way. And his mission was clear. Jesus was to conquer death and pay the penalty so that all of mankind could be reunited with God. As the two or three or four hours of fervent prayer passed, Jesus's agony and resolve made him sweat drops of blood. And he felt so weak that God sent an angel to give Jesus strength. Now, our human minds cannot comprehend the immensity of Jesus's task or his sacrifice. We simply know that it was to save us and that Jesus's suffering is the most blessed influence the world has has ever known. So let's continue back in our scriptures here with verse 47. And I want to go and read to verse 53. And verse 47 begins, And while he, and this is Jesus, was still speaking, Behold a multitude. And he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, And the elders who had come to him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour, the power of darkness. Let's take a look at verses 47 and 48. We're looking at Jesus' arrest, Jesus' betrayal. And by now, Judas has arrived with a group of the chief priests, the elders, and even the captains of the temple to arrest Jesus. This was prearranged. The traitor, Judas, marked Jesus out by giving Jesus a kiss. It was the crowning touch of horror, the last point of infamy beyond which human infamy could not go. When out in the garden, Judas betrayed his master, not with a shout or a blow or a stab, but with a kiss. And with infinite pathos, Jesus asked, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? While Jesus was still speaking to his disciples, Judas and the crowd make this sudden intrusion into this somber scene that we have in Gethsemane. And I want you to note the word crowd. It's often used in Luke to designate an unfeeling, perhaps even a hostile group of people. And from the crowd, attention moves to the man who was called Judas. This designation is a dramatic way of isolating Judas, holding him off at a distance for a derogatory look and a comment, this Judas, this person. And the betrayal was accomplished with a kiss in order to identify Jesus in the darkness of the night. But in the high drama of this actual situation, it was cruelly hypocritical. Now the disciples, verses 49 to 51 here, they realized what was going to happen, and they're ready to take the offensive. In fact, one of them, Peter, to be specific, takes a sword, and he cuts off the right ear of the servant of the high priest. Jesus rebukes Peter for using these kind of means to fight a spiritual warfare. Jesus' hour had come. God's predetermined purposes must come to pass graciously Jesus touched the ear of the victim and he healed him. Now in the book of John chapter 18 verse 10, it does tell us that it was Peter who drew the sword. John 18 10 says, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So we know from the book of John, chapter 18, verse 10, that it was Peter. And Luke alone tells us about Jesus' healing of the ear of this high priest's servant. Probably another mark because of Luke being a physician, and he would notice these kind of things. So we see in verses 52 to 53, turning to the Jewish leaders and the officers that were there to arrest Jesus, Jesus asked them why they had come after him as if he was a fugitive, a robber. Had, he, had Jesus not taught daily in the temple area? Yet they had not tried to take him then, but Jesus knew the answer. Jesus knew that this was their hour. This was their power of darkness, And it was now about midnight on a Thursday. And it seems that the religious trial of our Lord had three stages. The first one, Jesus appears before Annas. And then Jesus appeared before Caiaphas. And finally, he was arraigned before the Sanhedrin. Now, the events from this point through verse 65 that we will be getting into probably took place between... 1 a.m. in the morning, and 5 a.m. on Friday morning. And verse 52 gives us details regarding the makeup of the crowd. We have religious, we have political, and we have military leaders. Now, these details suggest Luke's emphasis that it was not the believing Jews who brought about Jesus' crucifixion, but it was their arrogant leaders. Jesus' crucifixion was brought about by these arrogant leaders, and Jesus' comment shows the underhanded nature of their act. The word "hour" that here designates a time of opportunity or a time of destiny. The verb reigns represents the now estusia, which is power or authority. Now, Satan had previously offered Jesus this power, this authority, this exusia in the temptation in chapter 4, verse 6. But Jesus, who after obediently going to the cross would receive all authority from The Father, God the Father. We see that in the book of Matthew, chapter 8, verse 18. And from the Father was willing to have Satan exercise his authority for a time under God's plan of salvation. So now let's take a look at Peter's denial. We're going to start looking at verse 54. Now, throughout this and the succeeding sections, we're going to have or we're going to see dramatic tension mounting. A contributing feature is the simultaneous action that takes place in the house of the high priest with Jesus that we'll see right away here in verse 54. And in the courtyard with Peter in verse 55 that's going to follow. Now, Luke separates this These two sequences of events to enable the reader to follow Peter's experience and then to follow Jesus' trial separately. Luke does not tell us anything about a night session of the trial, but allows it or allows for it in verse 54. The story of Peter's denial presents a sober and real. Picture of the prominent apostle. And along with verses 31 and 32, it offers a deep spiritual lesson about humility and spiritual conflict. So let's take a look at this here. Verse 54: Having arrested him, and this is Jesus, they led him and brought him to the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a a while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. We see when the Lord was brought into the high priest's house that Peter followed at a distance. Inside, he took his place with those who were warming themselves at a fire that was in the center of the courtyard. And we see that a servant girl looks at Peter and exclaimed that he was one of the followers of of Jesus and pathetically Peter denied that he knew Christ and Jesus's first trial took place in the high priest's house we see that in verse 54 possibly the house of Annas who was the father in law of the high priest Caiaphas and we find that out from the book of John chapter 8 uh, chapter 18 verse 13 when it says and they led him away to annas first for he was the father-in-law of caiaphas who was high priest that year so we know that he was the father-in-law of the high priest caiaphas though this meeting seems also to have been a trial before the entire sanhedrin and though peter followed jesus at a distance jesus or peter is the only disciple who so far as we know followed him at all. And the fire in the courtyard was needed because the evenings got cool in the springtime in Jerusalem. The denial had three phases. First speaker was a servant girl. Who she was and what she said were relatively harmless and did not deserve a drastic response. Peter's response is called a denial. The word deny is used in the New Testament as the polar opposite of the word confess. We are to confess, we're to acknowledge Christ, but deny ourselves. We're to disown our private interests for the sake of Christ. Peter does the reverse here. He denies Christ in order to serve his own interests. And shortly afterwards, as we start to take a look at verses 58 to 62 here, we see that someone else pointed the accusing finger at Peter as one of the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. And again, Peter denied the charge. After about an hour, someone else recognized Peter as a Galilean and also as a disciple of the Lord. Peter denied any knowledge of what the man was talking about. But this time his denial was punctuated by the crowing of a rooster. In that dark moment, Jesus turns and he looks at Peter. And that's when Peter remembers the prediction that before the rooster crows, Peter would deny Christ three times. The look from the Son of God sent Peter out into the night to weep bitterly. In none of these dialogues, does Jesus' name actually appear? The assumption is that the recent events in Jesus' life were already known to the group that was in the courtyard. The third speaker makes a definite assertion about Peter's association with Jesus. Now Luke does not record Peter's oath as Matthew and that Mark did, but he does record Peter's claim to ignorance about Jesus. At about this time, just as Jesus had predicted, we have the rooster crowing. In telling how the Lord looked at Peter in verse 61, Luke uses the same word that John used in John chapter 1 verse 42 to describe the way Jesus looked at Peter when they first met. It was a look of love. It was a look of concern. And Peter's feelings in verse 62 they need no further comment. So let's move in to our scriptures to verse 63, where it says, Now the men who held Jesus mocked him, and they beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophecy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. It was the officers Assigned to the sacred temple in Jerusalem, who apprehended Jesus. Now, these supposed guardians of God's holy house they begin to mock Jesus and they start to beat him. After blindfolding Jesus, they strike him on the face and then they go ahead and ask him to identify the one who did it. Now, this is not all they did, but Jesus patiently endured this contradiction of sinners against himself. This incident of Jesus being mocked and beaten is put into a position of sharp contrast between Jesus' sufferings and Peter's attempt to avoid any identification with Jesus. And also the soldiers hitting Jesus while he was blindfolded, they taunt him. They taunt him about prophesying. And that contrasts with Luke's clear portrayal in his gospel of Jesus as a prophet. Now let's continue a little further here. We're going to get into verse 66. We're going to see the trial before the Jewish leaders. It's the morning trial before the Sanhedrin. Now the probable order of Jesus' trial appearances in all four of the gospels is something like this. Jesus is before Anna, or Annas. Now that's in the book of John. Then he goes before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Then he goes before Pilate. Then Herod Antipas. And then before Pilate. So he goes to Pilate, Antipas, back to Pilate. The charges before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin were number one, threatening to destroy the temple and blasphemy. The charges before Pilate were subverting the Jewish nation, opposing the payment of taxes to Caesar, claiming to be king, and lastly, sedition, which is stirring up the people. So let's take a look at our scriptures here, beginning with verse 66, and I want to read to verse 71 here, where Jesus faces the Sanhedrin. Verse 66 begins, As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Now, at daybreak here, between about 5 to 6 a.m., the elders led Jesus away to their council, to their Sanhedrin. And the members of the Sanhedrin, they asked Jesus outright, Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, in effect, that it was useless to discuss this matter with them. They were not open to receive the truth. But Jesus warned them that the one who stood before them in humiliation would one day sit on the right hand of the power of God. Now, Luke has already indicated that Jesus was arrested during the night. We saw that in verse 47. And he has implied that Jesus was confronted by the authorities while in the house of the high priest. Now, following that was a was an official trial early in the morning. Luke summarizes the crucial exchange between Jesus and the leaders, and he adds a time note that it was becoming day. Now Matthew and Mark refer to the same time of day when the religious authorities reached a decision. Now immediately in the morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and they lead Jesus away and they deliver him to Pilate. Now Luke's way of reporting the questioning separates the questions regarding Messiahship and the regarding of the Son of God. And the word Christ that we saw in verse 67 at this time had not yet become proper name. So the questions Jesus was asked is whether he, Jesus himself, was claiming to be the Messiah. And Jesus answered them by saying that they would not believe him, even if he did answer them. He said that if he were to answer the question to them, or if uh, that if he were to question them, that they would not answer. And Jesus continues with an assertion concerning the exaltation of the Son of Man, who must be identified with Jesus here, Or the saying is completely irrelevant, but it vindicates Jesus and proves who Jesus is. This saying in Luke stresses the fact that from that very time in Jesus' appearance before the council, he was to be exalted. And note that Luke's emphasis on now, the present reality events that have their main significance in the future, But Luke is concerned with the present vindication of Jesus. And to finish up this section here, or finish up this chapter, rather, with verse 70 and 71, we see then that they asked Jesus plainly if he was the Son of God. There is no question what they meant. To them, the Son of God was the one who was equal with God. The Lord Jesus answers, you rightly say that I am. And that was all they needed. Had they not heard him speak what they considered blasphemy, claiming equality with God, that's what they wanted him to say. That was their smoking gun so they could accuse him of blasphemy. To them, there was no need for any other further testimony. But there was a problem. In their law, the penalty for blasphemy was death. Yet the Jews were under Roman power and they did not have the authority to put prisoners to death. That is the little rub that we have right now. So what do they do? They take Jesus to Pilate and he would not be the least bit interested in any kind of religious charge such as blasphemy. So they had to prefer political charges against Christ to take Jesus before Pilate, to have something done about Jesus. So standing independent of and subsequent to the question about Messiahship is a question in verse 70 which serves to emphasize that Jesus is himself the Son of God and is not merely called such as an honorific title because of his role as Messiah. And Jesus' reply, while not a direct affirmation, was taken as such, as verse 71 shows. And the nature of this reply is understandable in the light of Jesus' remarks that we saw in verses 67 and 68. That's chapter 22. we got two more chapters left. Next time, we are going to begin chapter 23. We'll have the trial before Pilate and before Herod. So be sure to come back and join us for that. Until next time, God bless you and keep living Christian strong.